But why don't we read together, follow along with me as I read from Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. And had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's pray again. Father, thank you for this, for this living word. Thank you that every word of God proves true. That your word is true, that it is powerful, that it is active in our midst, that it is um, accompanied with the power of the Holy Spirit. And we ask that that would be true now. That as we, as we look at your word together, as we hear what you have said, that we would hear what you are saying, and that you would work in our hearts for our joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this, this famous passage gives us the account of the birth, the beginning of the Christian church. The day Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to fill his people. The day when Peter stood up and, and preached a sermon to a crowd about Jesus' death and resurrection and 3,000 people Believed and were baptized. And that morning, that morning, all of Jesus' followers together had been 120. By bedtime, 3,120. The church had begun. And immediately, as soon as they had believed, these new believers began meeting together. Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, notice that Peter didn't have to tell them to do that. The people had said to Peter after he preached, they said, what shall we do? And Peter didn't say, well, now you have to join the church. You got to be here every Sunday. You have to get into a small group. You have to join a serving team. He said, repent and be baptized. Trust in Jesus. Turn to him. This gathering together wasn't commanded. They just did it. It wasn't an obligation. It was an appetite. They did it because they hungered for it. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher in London during the Second World War, and in his sermon on this passage, he observes, he says that, that this is the first sign of new spiritual life, a hunger for community. 
So my wife and I, my wife Kim and I are expecting a baby in January, a little girl. And when she is born, we will not have to teach her to want milk. We are not going to have to say to the baby, now, sweetheart, it is very important that you, you drink your milk every day. That's what you need to get big and strong. You, even when you don't feel like it, you must drink your milk. She's going to be born hungry. She's going to cry for it. She's going to scream for it. She's going to know instinctively that that's what her body needs. If, if she didn't cry for it, if she had no hunger, that would be incredibly concerning to us and to the doctors. We would know something was wrong right away. Her life and her health show themselves in hunger. And that's what it was like for these new Christians. They received this new life through trusting Jesus, and it showed itself immediately through this hunger to be together. It was like food to them. They knew instinctively that this this is what we need in order to grow in this faith that we now have in Jesus. So we're in the middle of a sermon series about what, what it really looks like for us as a church to fulfill Jesus' great commission to make disciples of all nations. And so far, we've talked about it in fairly individual terms. So we've talked about how making disciples means evangelizing, telling people who don't know Jesus about Jesus, what he's done, and how to respond to him. And it looks like discipling, mentoring, more mature Christians helping newer, less mature Christians to grow in faith, to walk on the way. But if we leave it there, we are, we're really leaving out a massive element because disciple-making isn't a solitary pursuit. It's not something we do just as individuals. Disciple-making, disciples grow in community. It's the community of growing disciples together, and that's what God uses to make more disciples, to cause more people to trust in Jesus. We see that at the end of the passage in verse 47. You may have noticed that right at the end. The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. It was community that he was using. So this is one of the most beautiful passages in scripture for understanding why that is and how that works. And so we're going to look at three facets from this passage of the life of the disciple-making community. And the first one is that becoming a disciple means embracing community. Loving Jesus means loving the church. They can't be separated This is what this passage shows us. As soon as these new disciples believed, as soon as they did, they began gathering together. It says, verse 42 says that they devoted themselves to it. That word means that they they persisted in the things. They were constant in it. They were steadfast in these things, in gathering together. They, They, getting them to church wasn't like pulling teeth, right? They wanted to be together. Look at verse 46. Luke says, he tells us that day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Every day, they were meeting in the temple courts. They would go to the temple courts, to the Jewish temple, and there they would listen to teaching together, and they would talk about it. And, and when that was over, they, they couldn't be done. They, they couldn't just go to the temple every day. They had to, they had to meet in their homes. They, they said, Hey, what are you doing after this? Why don't you come over for dinner? I'll put something on the grill. We'll just keep talking. We'll pray for each other. They just, they couldn't get enough of each other. They were hungry for it. Why? Because of what had happened to them when they became disciples. So let's, let's take a little step back and just see what's happening here on the day of Pentecost. So these, these people, these people who by the end of the day were disciples of Jesus, they'd started the day just ordinary Jews who were in Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost. So look, and they come from all over. So look back at chapter two, verse five. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews 
devout men from every nation under heaven. They had come from all over. And Luke tells us some of the places that they'd come from in verse 9. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, which is Gentile converts, Cretans and Arabians. These people had come, these, these weren't just, they weren't just Jerusalem dwellers, they had come from all over the world to worship, to be at this festival. And most of them, they'd probably come for Passover. They'd stayed a number of weeks in Jerusalem to wait for Pentecost, which was the festival happening this day. And on this particular morning, they heard the strangest thing. So they were just, you know, having their breakfast, starting their day, and they heard out in the streets Galileans, people from Galilee, just out in the streets proclaiming the wonders of God, the the mighty deeds of God. And they weren't proclaiming it in Greek, which was the, the trade language of the Roman Empire. It wasn't Aramaic, which would have been the language of the Jews. They were proclaiming it in every language, in, in all the languages of these people, from all these places where they'd come from. They were hearing the mighty deeds of God in their own language. That's what he says at the end of verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. That was a gift from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had come down on the church, and they began proclaiming what God had done in in the language of everyone in town. Everyone could hear for themselves what God was doing. And this spectacle drew a crowd, and Peter saw the crowd and thought, here's an opportunity. So he stood up, and he preached. And his sermon takes most of chapter 2. We're not going to look at it in depth, but it's summarized for us in verse 36, which we read. Look at that again. Peter said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter said God had promised to send a king, the Messiah, the Christ. And he came, Jesus of Nazareth. He did, he did mighty works and signs to show who he was, and you crucified him. You should have recognized him as the Christ, you should have submitted to him as Lord, but you rejected him and killed him, and his blood is on your hands. And, and that was literally true. Probably some of the people in this crowd had been in the crowd on the day that Jesus was crucified, crying out, away with this man, crucify him. They were responsible for his death. And Peter was saying to them, that person whom you killed, that was the Christ. That was the Messiah. That was the one God had sent and don't, don't kid yourselves. If we had been there on that day, the day that Jesus was crucified, we would have been in that crowd too. We would have wanted him away from us too. We would have wanted, you know, darkness recoils from light. What's crooked recoils from what's straight. We would have wanted him away from us as well. They rejected Jesus because of the same sin that lives in each of us. So Peter, Peter describes the kind of the default state of humanity in verse 40. He says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now, there's a crookedness about humanity, isn't there? We're bent somehow. Humanity, if you just watch the world, we are not getting better, are we? We, we don't just make mistakes. We do the wrong thing on purpose. We know it's wrong, but we like it, and we do it. We don't just do wrong. We are wrong. There's a wrongness about us. It's why we blow up at our kids' over trivial things. It's why we speak hurtfully to our spouse and kind of enjoy the way it hurts them. It's why, we, it's why appalling thoughts pass through our heads and we kind of indulge them. We don't, we don't get rid of them right away. It's why we do things that we tell ourselves we'll never do again. 
Sin isn't just what we do, it's what we are. We're crooked. And our crookedness, our sin, it deserves God's judgment. The things we've done, the things we do every day, they're just adding to the list of charges against us, to the list of reasons why God could rightfully put us away from his presence forever. We do wrong every day. Have you felt that? I mean, have you really felt that there's a wrongness about you that you can't fix? When Peter said these things to the crowd, Luke tells us in verse 37 that they were cut to the heart. God was working in them while they were listening such that the truth of it just pierced them. They just, they knew it was true. Have you ever been cut to the heart like that? Have you seen your crookedness, that you're wrong and you can't make yourself better, that you owe God righteousness and you don't have it? Have you been cut to the heart? The crowd was and they said, brothers, what shall we do? Is there, is there any hope for us? And Peter told them, Repent, turn from your old lives, be baptized, show that your trust is in Jesus, and you will be forgiven of your sins. He says that when you crucified Jesus, you were doing it to get rid of him. You were doing it for evil, but God was doing it for your salvation. That when you crucified him, he was dying for your sins, for your crookedness. He died to take the judgment you deserve so you can be forgiven, so the slate can be wiped clean, so you can be declared innocent Forever, You will be forgiven if you trust in him. And more than that, he says, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's own presence will come and dwell within you. God doesn't just forgive our crookedness. He wants to heal it. He wants to make us right from the inside out. He wants to change our lives so that we live the way that we should. So Peter said, don't stay where you are. Get out of this crooked generation. Trust in Jesus. Receive a clean record and a new life, and 3,000 people thought, that's good news, and they believed it, and they were added to the church. Now, do you see that becoming a Christian, it's not like taking up a hobby. It's not something you add on to your life. It's not like you say, well, things are going pretty well. I feel like I'm maybe 80% of the way there, but there's just something missing. I just, there's a little bit something that, that could really finish this off, that could complete the whole picture. I know I'll if, if I become religious, I'll add in some religion, and then, then you know, I, I'll feel more fulfilled. I'll, I'll make some new friends. My kids will get moral instruction. It'll really kind of complete the whole picture. Christianity, Christianity doesn't top up your life. It overturns it. It's an earthquake. It's a revolution. It says, until this moment, your life was crooked and bent. It was built on a heart that resisted God and ran away from him. But through trusting in Jesus, you've been washed clean and you're a new creation. You were spiritually dead and now you're alive. You were strangers to God, now you're children. It changes your desires, your ambitions, your loves. It's so profound that Jesus calls it being born again. It's a whole new life. Now how could that happen to you and you just go on living as you've always lived? Just doing what you've always done, same old routines, same old friendships. It's not that you become a Christian and you just discard everybody that you knew before you, before you were a Christian, but all of a sudden you have this whole area of life that everyone you've been doing life with doesn't share. You're walking this new road and now you want some companions who are walking the same way. You're going to have so many questions about this new life. You're going to be learning so many things you want to talk to somebody about. You're going to need someone who understands. Now, I grew up in a family that fishes, 
We're, Wendell's are boat people. And so in the summers, when we visit my parents on their farm, we like to take the grandkids fishing. And so last summer, we were visiting my parents, and my dad and I were trying to do, we were fishing on a dock with six small children, my two and my sister's four. And my, dad's, my dad and I were the only, the only adults. You know, there's like no rails on this thing, so we're just kind of moving around from child to child. The fish were biting, and so the, just every couple seconds, a pole was coming up, a fish was dangling, and we were, you know, trying to take the fish off and throw it back in the water and put new bait on the hook and keep it out of people's eyes and just keep everyone from falling in the lake. And, and so you can imagine, in the pandemonium, some of these fish were out of water longer than they should have been. Right? And you've seen a fish out of water, right? It's gasping, it's flopping around, it's trying desperately to get back where it belongs. And just, just imagine what it's like for that fish to hit the water again. And to, to just, to feel, not that they think, but to really feel like, I can breathe again. I'm home. Church should be like that for us. We spend so much of our week in places where, where the culture is if not hostile to Jesus, indifferent to him. Where, where nobody, they don't know him. People don't love him. We can't share that part of life with them. And getting here on Sunday morning or arriving at community group should be like that fish hitting the water. We should just come in and think, I can breathe here. These people understand. This is, this is my home. Is that ex- your experience? Do you have this appetite for community that shows the new birth and the new life, this just hunger to be together. If not, ask God to give it to you. And what does this community of disciples do? So the second thing we want to see is that the community of disciples shares life like family. Now, as I was reading and studying this passage this week, I I thought this description is going to make some people really uncomfortable. Look at verses 44 to 46. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. I could just imagine some of you reading that and thinking, wait, they had all things in common? They were selling their possessions to make sure that everyone's needs were met. They were having people in their homes Every day, not just when they were clean, but all the time. This life sounds so foreign to us. In this community, the people treated their time and their possessions and their homes as though they didn't belong to them alone, but in some sense to the community. Now, we in the West, we love our privacy. We love our independence. We like to have friendships, but we want them on our terms. We want to be liked but not needed. We don't want anyone to just count on us. We want to make liberal use of the maybe response button on Facebook. Maybe I'll come. Please don't depend on me. Don't ask me to bring anything. If I can, I will, right? We just, we want to hold ourselves a little bit aloof. We like hosting people in our homes, but only when we've planned to. We don't generally love just the drop-in and the hangout, right? We want to, we want some notice that people are coming over. We want to we we give, we want to be generous, but we want it to be strictly voluntary. We don't want to be asked or especially expected to give money when there's a need. We want to share our time and our possessions in our homes, but we want it to be absolutely clear to everybody that these things are ours. We don't really like the idea of owing them to someone else, but we make an exception for family, don't we? Family can ask things of us that others can't. Family can just drop in. Family can tell us, you are going to be at dinner on Sunday. 
family, when, when there's a bill in your family, when someone in your family, they have this medical bill they can't pay, you know that you have a responsibility to help them, right? Because of the love that you share, you know that what their problems are your problems. What affects them affects you. And in a healthy family, that's not an obligation. You want your family members to know that they can ask you for things, that what's, what's yours is theirs. That's what this is a picture of. These first Christians, even though they were from different countries, different cultures, even though they were strangers, until this moment, they immediately became a family. They embraced each other as family. They let others make demands on their time. They sold their possessions to make sure that nobody in the family was going without what they need. They welcomed each other into their homes, even presumably when they were messy. What they shared, this new life in Christ, was so powerful that a person who was different from them in every other way but shared this was like their brother or their sister. Have you found that? Have you found that there are people in this church who are from a different country than you're from, whose first language is not your first language, who come from an entirely different socioeconomic class than you do, and yet because you share this, because you share Christ, you're, you're like one another, you're similar, you can engage with one another in a way that you can't do with someone who was, was born in your same hometown, went to your high school, pursued the same career, is at the same place, that, that just sharing Jesus overcomes and is greater than all the things that divide us. Has that happened to you? Can you look around this room and say, these people are not like me, but because we share Jesus, these are my people. This is my family. What, what's mine is theirs. Now, when this new family gathered, what did they do? They did together the things that nourished their shared life in Christ. Look at verse 42 again. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They learned together, right? They went to the temples and they listened to the apostles' teaching and they, I don't know if they took notes, but they remembered what they were listening and they talked about what it had to do with their lives. And we have the apostles' teaching in scripture. And so when we study it on Sunday mornings, we study it in small groups. It's a way of, of knowing Jesus more so we can love him more and trust him more. And they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Now fellowship, it's such a churchy word but it means sharing. It means participation. When you have fellowship with someone, you make them a participant in your spiritual life. You, you involve them. You tell them how you're struggling, and you ask them to pray for you, and, and re you receive their encouragement. You, and they make you a participant in their lives. You think about them when you're not together. You're, you're an active participant. You're not just an onlooker. You're not totally separate. You become a participant in their life of faith. If after the service ends, there'll be coffee in the back. If you just go back there and have coffee and talk about rugby, that's, I'm not going to scold you, but you are missing an opportunity for this, for involving one another in your life of faith. And they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, probably what that means is that they had meals together, and as part of a meal, they celebrated the Lord's Supper together. That they, they had bread, and they had wine, and they said, while we're eating, why don't we just remember what Jesus has done to make us his and to make us family. Let's just celebrate this together. They were, they were devoting themselves to the breaking of bread and they devoted themselves to the prayers. They prayed together in organized worship times, but also informally in their homes whenever they needed it. They had structured times of worship and they had, they had unstructured times of worship and they were seeing God work, right? Verse 43 says that 
Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So they were gathering publicly, they were gathering privately, they did stuff in large groups, they did stuff in small groups, but in all of it, what characterized that first church was that all who believed were together. They were a family, they shared life. Now, I studied engineering in university, which means I took a bunch of physics classes, which I really loved, and so I want to do a small physics thing now that I think is going to be fine, okay? It's not, there's not heavy math. But, I, but what I learned in my physics classes, so imagine, if you imagine that I have a ball, and if I threw that ball kind of at this angle, so you just have to imagine where it goes, what shape would it make? It would make an arc, right? It would go up, and then it would come down. Now, if I had something, a ball is kind of easy, but if I had an object that was irregularly shaped, like imagine I had an axe, okay? I don't know why axe, but if I, and I threw that axe at the same angle, it would go end over end, right? But the center of gravity of that axe would follow the exact same arc, right? The center of gravity would just go up and down while the whole thing revolves around it, okay? Is that, is that making sense? I, I didn't bring an axe, to actually show you, I just, it's depending on your imagination. The center of gravity is the point around which everything else revolves. So where is the center of gravity of your life? What does everything else revolve around? What dictates how you spend your time and your money? What, what, when you change jobs, where you move? Is it your life in Christ, and by extension your community, or is it something else? The way the first church showed that their, the way they showed their life was by devoting themselves to life together. They would pass up other things to be with their family. But if the center of your life is something else, then that's going to show itself too, right? So what does your life revolve around? Does your life revolve around work? Now, obviously, we all have a responsibility to do the tasks that are expected of us at our work, but does your career, does your work does it govern your evenings and your weekends? Is work the reason why you haven't gotten back to the person that keeps reaching out for coffee? Is work the reason why you can't be a part of a community group? Or, or does your life revolve, is your center of gravity your kids? And you just want so badly for them to have everything they need for them to succeed in life that you've, you've scheduled them in so many activities that it just totally overwhelms and consumes anything that you do for yourself, any time that you spend with other people. You can't, you can't be here on Sundays. You can't be in a small group because it's just the kids need me. The kids need me. How, is, that, is that where your whole life revolves? Or maybe the gravitational center of your life is leisure. And so if, if the sea is calm, if the fish are biting, if, you're, if your team is playing, that's what trumps everything else. That's where you're going to be. What dictates how you spend your time? Is it your life in Christ or is it something else? Now, I don't want to be, and I'm, I'm trying not to be, that minister scolding people for not being at church more. That's not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to help you see is that if you have no hunger, no appetite for community, for being together, then there's ill health in your spiritual life that needs to be examined. You need a diagnosis. There's something else crowding out your life in Christ that's more important to you, that's governing that. Does that make sense? These people, when they trusted Jesus, it showed itself by being together. If you don't have a hunger for that, then something's off that we need God's attention on. Okay, so if we become a community like this, what will result? Finally, God uses this community to make more disciples. Look again at verses 46 to 47. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So these new disciples, these baby Christians, as they devoted themselves to life together, they were being shaped, they were being changed into joyful, generous, thankful people. Praising God wasn't an obligation to them. It just bubbled up and poured out. They were living differently, and people saw it, right? This wasn't a private transformation. They weren't just meeting in homes. They were in the temple every day, and so their neighbors, other people were seeing them out in public, gathering with the Christians, listening to teaching, worshiping, praising, loving one another in a way that was totally contrary to what you would think because they were virtual strangers until they became Christians. People saw them giving sacrificially of their time and their treasure. They saw rich Christians selling what they had to make sure poor Christians had enough. People from utterly different backgrounds living like family, and they said, what's with these people? I know that I should live like that, but I can't. I don't. What makes them different? What makes them able to live this way? So people saw the way these Christians lived together, and they said, that's good. It was attractive. Luke tells us that they, they had favor with all the people. The people looked on the Christians favorably. They said, they're doing what we ought to be doing. There's something better about them. And these, these people watching, they would want to know more. So maybe they'd come to the temple when the Christians were there, and they'd kind of stand at the fringe of the crowd and just see if they could hear what was being taught, because it, it must be different. And maybe there, they'd get noticed, and someone would say, we're going, we're going back to my house for dinner. Why don't you come? Why don't you come and eat with us? And then they would see the way that they loved each other, the way they cared for each other. And as they heard the good news about Jesus and they saw the power of the message changing these people, they would think, what if it's true? What if it's true? What if I am crooked deep down and I'm under God's judgment and the only way for me to be saved is through trusting who they trust, trusting in Jesus? And then they would, they'd repent and be baptized and they'd join right into the life together. And that's beautiful, isn't it? This, this community transformed by God's work, being changed into people of such love and generosity that the people around them see it and think, I want to know more. I want to hear what that's about. That this, this watching world takes notice, they listen in and they experience the transformation for themselves. And what an opportunity we have here in Cayman, Right? in a community that is so often fractured, fractured along ethnic lines, along national lines, fractured along economic lines, if we could be a community where people from different nations with different skin colors, some with money and some without, where people really love each other and listen to one another and open their homes to one another, wouldn't that stand out? Wouldn't that show the power of the new life we've received? Wouldn't it be attractive? Listen, disciples hunger for, grow in, and are made through community. If you want to see people here coming to know Christ, give yourself to life in community with other believers. If sunrise is your church, press in. Don't come 10 minutes late and leave 10 minutes early so you don't have to meet anybody. Come 10 minutes early and stay 10 minutes late and get to know your family. Stay, stay after today for the newcomer's lunch. Join the Connect group and get five weeks with people you don't know in community. Just get started. Open your life to one another. And as you learn, as you share in Christ, as you pray and serve, not only will you grow, but God will use our community 
to more and more point other people to the gospel, right? It's, he says, Luke says that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's the Lord who saves, but he uses this community. And if you've realized this morning that you may not have this new life, that you, you have zero appetite to be with other Christians, hear what Peter says to the crowd on Pentecost. He says in chapter 2, verse 21, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you don't know that you have this life, call on the name of Jesus to forgive you and give you this new life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we are astonished once again that, that you have called us to yourself. That we were, we were far off. We were, we were crooked and members of a crooked generation and you called us to yourself in your love. You wanted us for yourself and you wanted you for us and we marvel at that and thank you for the gift of community for people around us who share that love, who share that joy, people who can remind us of that when we forget, people who, who bring us back in when we stray, people who point us to you. Thank you for this family. Thank you for the church. And I pray, Father, that you would help us, each one of us, to become the part of the body that you want us to be, that you, that you would use us to encourage each other, that you'd use us to strengthen each other, use us to serve each other, use us to provide for each other, that we would love one another in a way that shows the world what your love is like. And, and as we do, Father, we, we ask that you would that you would day by day add to our number those who are being saved. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.